Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Jan Morris, who died on November 20th, 2020, shortly after her 94th birthday, was known as an historian and a travel writer. As James Morris, she accompanied Edmund Hillary on the first expedition to the summit of Mount Everest. Before and after her gender transition in 1964, Jan Morris wrote 18 travel books, six history books, including a noteworthy three-volume history of the British Empire, eight memoirs, including the best-selling Conundrum, two novels, 12 collections of essays, and other books. When my late co-host on Probabilities and Cover to Cover, Richard A. Lupoff, and I learned that Jan Morris was coming to a travel conference at Book Passage Bookstore in Corte Madera, California, we set up an interview in an office in the store on August 8, 1999, to talk with Jan Morris about her life and her work as a writer. Jan Morris, you have been writing now since you were quite young, and you've been both travel writer and historian, yet the two, it strikes me from reading your work, the two are more intertwined than most people think. And I'd like you to talk a little about that. What does a historian bring to travel writing? I think it's probably the other way around, actually. I've never thought of myself as a travel writer. I hate being called a travel writer. I don't really like travel writing. I don't believe in the genre of travel writing. But in my own particular case, what has happened is that I was thrown into travel when I was very young. And so I acquired some of the techniques of travel writing. And those things that I learned there, I've used in writing history. That's what I myself think of myself as doing. But the resultant books are a mixture, as you say, of, of history and travel and imagination and, and emotion. And they get branded, on the whole, as being travel books, if you follow me. I don't believe they are, but that's, that's what it is. The history and the travel necessarily get gets mixed up because I'm better at the writing about travel than I'm writing, than I'm about writing about history, really. <laughs> what you bring to travel, certainly, is an eye that most people simply don't have. You see more than most people see, and I think it translates into your writing. It's purely unconscious, you know. I'm not really observant, I don't think. I, I don't actually notice things as much as many other people do. But somehow there's a, there's a place at the back of my mind, it seems, where impressions are made that I don't really know about, that they're stored up there somehow or other. And then when I come down to, to write whatever I am writing, suddenly they seem to come. It's wonderful, isn't it? Very lucky. In your books, uh, this mixture of history and geography, uh, as I started reading one in particular, 50 Years of Europe, I flashed back to my own boyhood and I was thinking, I, I wish I had a book like this when I was uh, 12 years old. 
instead of being forced to memorize roll calls of kings and battles or memorize the five leading imports and the seven leading exports of Bulgaria. <laughs> Were you forced to learn history and geography that way? Is, is your work a reaction to that? No, I can't say it is really. I was never taught dates very much. And I, ever since I've had rather a cavalier attitude to dates, I make them up as I go along. <laughs> and sometimes I remember to check when I get home, you know, but often I don't, as a matter of fact, in the same way as I'm very bad on the points of the compass. You know, I've often made appalling mistakes about geography in that way. So, no, I don't think the way I look at it is, it, is, is at all a reaction to the way I was brought up. I think it's just happened like topsy, just grew and grew. As an historian, you cover two different kinds of history, or at least that's my perception of it. One is what we call contemporary history, that is, events of our own lifetimes, uh, which certainly 50 years of Europe would cover. Uh, but then you go back and, and you do much longer spans of history, as, for instance, your three-volume work on the history of the British Empire. Is is your working method different for those two kinds of books? No, I think they're the same kind of books. And in fact, my historical imagination and, and memory, if you can call it that, is very restricted. I'm not interested, to tell you the truth, in history before the late 18th century. I'm the Middle Ages leaves me cold, <laughs> except perhaps in my own country, Wales, where it is very important to the way we live and think now. But in, in writing about a, a wider thing, like the British Empire, I, I deliberately start at the early 19th century or the late 18th century. I could have gone much further back in writing those uh, British history books back into the 16th century. But I feel so remote from it, it doesn't sort of catch my imagination. They seem totally different people from the ones that I have myself met and know and am, that I can't be bothered with them, to tell you the truth. So the, the history I do write, which begins rarely at the start of the 19th century, is familiar to me to begin with. I feel I know the people. I mean, they might be my or your great-grandparents, mightn't they? They've, they're people one can touch and, and feel and, and imagine and have some love for. Before that, they're just puppets for me. Do you think of yourself as British or as Welsh? Uh, I myself as both. I had an English mother and a Welsh father. And I love, I have loved many aspects of British life and even of English life, <laughs> I may add. Uh, but I fear myself romantically Welsh. My emotion, emotionally, I'm Welsh. Always, always has been my, my chief passion in life is, is Wales and Welshness. But I admire uh, the British way of life in many ways, especially as it was, and so I am proud to feel I have a bit of each. But as a member uh, of the Welsh nationality rather than the English, uh, that also gives you a slightly different view of empire. And I notice that in your work, there's a thread there, and that thread may have to do with the fact that the 19th and 20th centuries are full of empire. In your writing, because there seems to be this focus on empire, is it just that where you look, you see American or British empire, or are you working from the perspective of understanding that the empires have existed, and therefore when you look out at the world, you then see that? 
I was never an imperialist, really. It's, it's almost a contradiction in terms to be a Welsh imperialist, <laughs> because half our passions have been devoted to getting rid of the, the empire, if you see what I mean. And so that gives me, anyway, a detached viewpoint, if you see what I mean. I was in a way was sorry that the British Empire died because I loved many aspects of it, but I knew it was time for it to go, and I didn't approve of it. That's the thing. I, d I don't believe in one nation lording over another one, but I found it. I found it beautiful. I, I like the aesthetics of it. You know, I like the emotions of it. I sympathise with the people who often thought they were doing good, even if they weren't. All that part gives me, also Welshness, gives me. A different attitude, I think, to empire from what most English historians must have. Also, I've always liked decline. <laughs> I like declining things. I like cities that are past their great power. You know, I like nations that are over the over the top. <laughs> I like decay, and I like a touch of melancholy. All that, <laughs> all that comes into my work. I noticed in your new introduction to uh, the world of Venice. You talk about how Venice is now more alive than it was when you first wrote your work 20, 30 years ago, and that gives you a certain sadness. It does. I miss the tristesse of, of Venice very much. Yes, I'm happy for Venice in the, in the fact that it is now much more prosperous than it used to be. But I do miss the tristesse, and this is because largely I'm a terribly, shamefully subjective writer, really, you know. And when I write about a city, I'm, I'm not describing really the city. I'm describing my own responses to the city. And in the case of Venice, my original responses were to the seduction of its melancholy and the fact it had been great. Wordsworth wrote about it, you know. We must all feel sad when that which once was great isn't great no longer. I feel that very much about all sorts of things, and especially about Venice, which is an epitome of the city that's lost its purpose, its true purpose. I noticed in your essay uh, that appeared in Rolling Stone in your book, Destinations, talking about Washington, D.C., and I noticed the same thing, that as one looks at the marble columns of the Capitol, one can almost see a thousand years into the future and see the decay and the ruin even before it arrives. And I think you, you create that feeling there as well. It, it's kind of creating the melancholy before it actually exists. I wouldn't give it a thousand years, but <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yes, it's it's partly, uh, you know, self-indulgence as a matter of fact. I like to think of it as it as it will be, as it's going to be. Of course, someday it's going to be past its greatness. I, I, it fascinates me. I like to think of it that I don't want to be rude about Washington. You know, I don't. I'm not saying I it's hope great. it to go forth <laughs> soon into decay, but I just like to think of it that way. When I when I said a thousand years, I didn't mean that the American Empire would last a thousand years. What I meant was a thousand years from now, much as we look back on, say, the ruins, the old ruins of Rome, we can see what they once were, and all that's left is the detritus. Yes, Gibbon. I expect you remember he imagined a New Zealander a thousand years from hence standing in the ruins of Rome and thinking, "What's happened to all the other nations in between?" They all go, they come and go, empires come and go. Thank goodness. <laughs> We're talking with Jan Morris, uh, who has several books. What is your most recent? Uh, I've almost forgotten. Oh, the, the most recent one hasn't come out yet. And it is a book about Abraham Lincoln, which oh. comes out in America on uh, Lincoln's birthday, which I'm sure you know better than I do. 
February year 2000. February the 12th. <laughs> I'd, I'd like you to talk about your beginnings as a writer, which it strikes me in view of what you just said about empires and their decline, uh, does converge because my introduction, at least to Jan Morris, is as a young soldier sitting on a bollard in the harbor at Trieste at the end of World War II, which was certainly the end of empires and the beginning of empires all going on in this big muddle at once. Trieste sums it all up for me, and I have a feeling my last book will be about Trieste. I've written about it in dribs and drabs over all these years, and it epitomizes in me so much that does appeal to me, that the melancholy, decline, historical interests, cultural confusions, a beautiful setting, a great old city with a long history, all that can be found in Trieste. And attached to that is a certain sense of separateness from the world at large, which I feel in myself. I feel Trieste and I are made for each other, really. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, His Majesty of the time sent me there. For those listeners who, who don't happen to know, you began life as James Morris and became Jan Morris down the road. In the context of that, you did have a bestseller, but I don't want to focus on that so much as on the fact that you wrote about various places prior to becoming Jan Morris, and then you wrote about some of the same places after becoming Jan Morris. And I'm curious, having been viewed as both man and woman, what are the differences in how people view you? Uh, what are the differences in how you are related to in these different kinds of countries? Are there countries where you're treated the same, countries where you find incredible differences? Oh, this is all too old a story and too old a question. I've been asked this 20,000 times in the course of the years. The answer is really that the transition was so gradual. It happened over many years of my life that it's very hard for me to say what I was at any one given time. If you see what I mean, I can't remember very often when I, which, in which way I was traveling. But I can only draw generalizations, of course, from what it seems to me. On the whole, people are still kinder to a woman, despite the advance of feminism. So in a way, it's more advantageous to travel as a woman than it is to travel as a man. That There are added dangers, of course, uh, that a man doesn't suffer, but there are added compensations as, as well. If I were given the choice now, which I am certainly not going to be, <laughs> I would certainly prefer to go on traveling as a woman than as a man. But as to one's own reactions, it's very, very hard to gauge that, you know. It isn't that people think of these events, which have now become very common, have they not, in humanity. But they, people think of them as an event, as something that happened, bonk, one day, one year, you were traveling as a man, one next year you were traveling as a woman. It isn't, in my case anyway, it wasn't like that at all. I, I, I wasn't either for a long time, really, and the, the movement was slow and confused and tumultuous, and all the time I was writing and looking at places. So I really can't answer your question very coherently. You must forgive me. <laughs> Make it up. <laughs> well, you just did, but, but one other point is that now, of course, there are women soldiers who can relate to what the history, what war was like, but for most of your writing career, that put you in, a, in an interesting point. You were a soldier in combat, and yet, as a woman, this, the, that, that made you unique. It made me separate. 
that's the thing. And the separateness, obviously, is part of my writing, as you've already mentioned. And it, it's, it's given me a taste for separate things, for different things, for things that are outside. I like outside. I like mavericks. You know, I like Trieste. <laughs> I like all the things that aren't exactly normal, to tell you the truth. I tell you, I, uh, I gave a lecture the other day at uh, a festival in Wales, the Hay Festival. It's the best literary festival in Britain now. And my lecture was about um, the future of Wales. It was quite a serious thing. People from our new National Assembly was there, you know. And I'm always asked if I'm going to stand for the Assembly, and I say I'm too old for that now. But, say I, I have my own ideas about what the presidency of Wales should be like. And that seems to be a rule, the rule for a possible candidate for the presidency should be one over 70 long experience, you see, <laughs> should be used to public speaking, lectures, things like that, should be handy with the pen, of course, should speak Welsh, <laughs> and should preferably stand outside the normal parameters of sexual normalcy. <laughs> 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 and uh, to my surprise, I have to say, this time, this eminent, and elderly, largely elderly audience, this is statesmen and politicians and things, thought this was funny. <laughs> it shows how the world has changed, doesn't it? This would not be a multi-party election, then. <laughs> the, the existence of this new Welsh National Assembly, which, of course, we've, we've heard of here in America, but not very much about, and I understand there's also a new Scottish National Assembly. Do you feel that, that not only the great empires, but the multinational nations, if you will, yeah. Uh, and, and again, speaking of Trieste, uh, the tragedy of Yugoslavia that we've all seen mm -hmm. in 1990, well, in, in several past years, but, but culminating in 1999, uh, is, is the world just, you know, crumbling apart into atoms? Well, I don't think of it as crumbling apart at all, because I believe that happiness of the small nations are the happy nations, and my experience has shown me this to be true. I hate the word nationalist, although I, I suppose I am a nationalist. I don't like it because I, it has connotations and implications of meanness, doesn't it? Of xenophobia, of, of wanting to be better than the nation next door. I don't believe in that at all. But I do believe in the separateness of nations. And I think the Yugoslav tragedy was really caused by the fact that a lot of separate nations were forcibly put together, under the first under the Austro-Hungarian Empire and then under the Tito's empire too, which worked for a bit. But nevertheless, ethnic cleansing, horrible though it has proved, and horribly though it's done, it comes, in my opinion, from the human heart. I think people want to be separate. It isn't true of America because you were born as a melting pot nation. You, isn't that so? The point of America is to make it a, a multinational place. But it is not the point of ancient nations which have been in the same site for thousands and thousands of years. And it seems to me that nearly always the attempts of empires to put these people together into a wider comedy have failed. So that is why I myself am a fervent advocate not only of Welsh nationality but of European confederacy. I think a loose association of individual nations proud of being separate nations with their own 
values, their own institutions, but nevertheless linked in a wider, perhaps, to deal with boring things like economics, and wars and stuff. <laughs> we had, happily hand that over to a European central government. But for the rest, a nation should, in my opinion, is happier when it is a nation. But I must add also, I'm sorry to talk so much, <laughs> I must also add that in, in my own particular case in Wales, my view is that anybody who comes to Wales and says, I want to be Welsh, can be Welsh, whatever their colour, whatever their religion, they've only got to do certain things. They've got to learn the language and they've got to say, I adhere to the values that Wales belongs to Wales, which is what Wales is all about. But your comments regarding breaking up countries, breaking up into their smaller aspects, what about places where you have two populations which have historically been against each other? I'm talking specifically, of course, of Israel, South Africa, and even Northern Ireland. All of them, each one, the result of imperialism. Sure. Is that not so? They're not naturally divided at all. One has been imposed upon the other in each case. Northern Ireland, because the British took over Ireland and then planted Scots people in Northern Ireland, so they're not really Irish anyway by root, though they, of course they feel themselves to be Irish now. Israel, because, again, because of the British Empire, and very largely, the uh, Balfour Declaration took back the Jews to a promised home in Israel for right or for wrong. Uh, what was the third example you South gave Africa. me? South Africa, the prime one, of course. Black people there, white people coming and take over. Naturally, those places aren't happy. And the happiest thing would be in each case if they could somehow be separated. But it's it's too late. How do these people find a way to live together? Do you have any insight? No, I don't. I don't. None of us have any insight as far as I can make out. And the, the furthest that people have got is Mandela. Mandela has approached it from a moral point of view, in his case, a Christian point of view. And goodness is what wins. <laughs> if if there's enough goodness around, it can be done. Of course it can. Mandela has done it, I think, so far with, with extraordinary success. And I was talking today about who is going to be the man of the century in Time magazine. It seems to me there's really no rival to Mandela as a, as a symbolic figure of the reconciliation of, of, of the races and of the nations too. Have you been back there recently? No, I haven't. Not, not for 10 years or so, so I can't say much about it. How about uh, Zimbabwe? Have you been back there since uh, your essays in the mid-70s? Yes, I have. I've been back to Zimbabwe since it became Zimbabwe. I have relatives, so I did have relatives there. They've moved to South Africa, like so many people. <laughs> Zimbabwe, uh, South Africa being now very trendy among English people who know to go and live. What about those Rhodesians? Are they still the white Rhodesians? Are they still in Zimbabwe, or have they all left? No, a lot of them, like them, have gone to South Africa, have come back to Britain, really. But their roots it was easier for them, you know, than it was for the Africans in South Africa whose roots were very deep and who genuinely felt themselves to be Africans, as indeed it has proved. They're still there now. Whereas for the English, both in South Africa and in Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, they were pretty shallow on the ground. They had no deep roots. Nobody had been there for more than a couple of generations. So it was relatively easy for them to get out of it. But you, you mentioned religion several times. Uh, and when you mentioned Mandela, uh, this immediately put me in mind of uh, uh, Desmond Tutu, 
whom I heard deliver an address one time, and, and he was asked about the white government. This was before the change. Yeah. And he was speaking of President Bota at the time. Uh, things were really terrible. And, and when I heard him speak of, Bish of President Bota, it was, he sounded like a man who had a beloved brother who had become a criminal. And he was upset that he had become a criminal, but he loved him no less for it. Yeah. Do you feel that this kind of uh, spirituality can truly save our world from self-destruction? Well, I do, in fact, but then so did Tolstoy. <laughs> did he not? <laughs> so far, it hasn't worked. But I, I do think that the Africans, especially in South Africa, in many ways, are an example to us because it has always struck me. I've been, I wrote a book about Africa long ago, and the thing that always struck me was the extraordinary generosity of black Africans in the South, anyway, towards whites, against whom they had every legitimate grievance, as far as I could see. They were always kindness, that's the thing. They were kind, nearly always. I know it's riddled with crime now, is it not, South Africa? Nevertheless, there's a native ingrained kindness. And kindness is my own religion. I mean, I believe in kindness. <laughs> kindness is the answer to everything, I think. Mandela has been extremely kind. The more kind one can be to everybody, the happier we're all going to be, including ourselves. <laughs> you describe yourself, I believe, as a pagan. Yeah, and, a pagan. <laughs> well, but now, we're living in a world of, of formal religions, most of whom have proved to be uh, among the most murderous institutions ever invented by our species. That's why I'm a pagan. <laughs> Partly why I'm a pagan. But I think that's unfair to organize religions myself. I mean, and awful things have come out of them, but it's only been a perversion of the organized religion, really, genuinely, like uh, fundamentalism of all kinds. Fundamentalist Islam, fundamentalist Christianity, too. Buddhism seems to escape the worst forms of fundamentalism, doesn't it? But the, those of us who are most free from these horrors are us pagans. Jan Morris, I'd like to switch for a second and talk a little about your writing methods, uh, your working methods. As a historian, when you've got a topic or you're going to a place, let's say you're writing an essay about a particular place, yeah. what kind of research do you do prior to going to the place or do you go there and then do your research when you're there or afterward? Well, it's a bit different from what it used to be because nearly everywhere I go now, I've written about before and I know, as a matter of fact. But in general, what I've done is, before I go to a place, just to get the essentials of it, you know, the very simplest forms of things, roughly in my mind, and then clear my mind if I can of everything. I certainly clear my mind of anything that anybody else has ever written about it. And then go and have all my antennae out, you know, and think about nothing else at all except the subject in hand. And then get back and then read much more widely, if I've got time. Of course, if it's journalism, you haven't got time, as you know as well as I do. Mm -hmm. When you're doing uh, historical work, do you try to visit the sites as well? Oh, yes. I'd be no good without that. We began this conversation, didn't we, by, by, by the relationship between travel writing and history. My sort of history, which is very, very unacademic and very subjective, I couldn't write unless I went to the place and saw and felt it. Let us get back to your work then and to your career. If you think 1946 is an appropriate time to start, let's do so. Otherwise, pick another year. The transformation of Jim Morris, the soldier, 
into Jim Morris, the tra- not the travel writer, but the writer. How did that come about? W- was it always your intention as a child to be a writer, or is this something that, that came upon you later on? Well, I had no intention about it, but I, I didn't know it was the only thing I was any good at. Really, I, I found I had this facility when I was very young, and I enjoyed it. It was fun. And I really wasn't much good at anything else, and I still am not. It's the only thing, it's the only ability I have. I began writing, as a matter of fact, uh, when I was still in the army. I mean, I began writing professionally. I did a thing, the very first essay I ever had published, I think, was about uh, a monastery, St. Catherine's, in the Sinai Desert. And some friends of mine from my regiment and I thought it would be nice to go to this monastery, which was a Coptic monastery and which had sister monasteries in Egypt proper, not in Sinai. And we thought it was fun, would be fun if we sent a jeep with a radio to one of these other monasteries in Egypt proper and one to Catherine's monastery at Sinai and linked the two abbots by radio, <laughs> which we did. <laughs> one lot went to one and we went to the other one and we fixed up a radio link and the two old friends talked to each other over the radio. And I wrote a piece about it for a defunct magazine in Edinburgh. <laughs> and that was the beginning of my career. What's the background of your first book publication? America. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I came to America in 1953 uh, on a fellowship called the Commonwealth Fellowship, which became a Harkness Fellowship. And the uh, requirements were you came for a year and you had to spend part of the time at a university and part of the time traveling. So uh, I, did, I hated university. I hated education. <laughs> but I said, uh, they said, well, we'll put something down for you. What university would you like? I said, oh, well, Chicago. It's about the only name I knew. They said, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll put down uh, social studies or historical studies or something like that. I said, okay, that's fine. And off I went to Chicago. First American city I ever slept a night in, and I detested the students' hostel in which I had been placed. You know, they used to say of us in those days of the British that we all behaved as if we were the children of rich parents, and I certainly did. I I liked good hotels, and I didn't like the students' hostel one little bit. So I said to them, "Well, I'm not going to do anything at this university. I'm just going to travel around America for a year." They're very nice people. They said that's fine. So I bought a Chevrolet, and I spent the year wandering around America. Had a marvelous time. Absolutely fulfilled, really, what the fellowship was for, which was to introduce Europeans to America and to make them fond of America. It worked a dream from their point of view. And I had to give a report in at the end of the year, and I wrote a book, which was the report. It was about America. What was the name of that book? Well, in England, it was called Coast to Coast. In America, it had a very bad title, which was bestowed upon it by my publishers. And what is the genesis of the three-volume History of the British Empire? Well, I suppose that began because I was in the empire at the end. I'm old enough to have been part of it. I I took part in the withdrawal from empire, and I served in many imperial places. And I, first of all, I was going to write simply a book about the empire at its prime. I, I wondered what it had been like, really, to tell you the truth. It was a had been in decline all my life and most of my parents' lives, I suppose, too. So I wanted to see what it was like. And so I wrote a book called Pax Britannica, which was a celebratory 
portrait of the empire at its prime. And then I got so interested in the subject that I went back. I, I put in a first volume which led up to that climax, and then I put another one which described the decline down to the death of Churchill and to my own entry into the subject, really. Do you think that some other Jan Morris of the future could write a say, the similar three-book history, say, of the decline and fall, the rise and decline and fall of the American empire, or was the period too brief? No, I believe they could. But I thought you were going to say, could they write a book about the same subject in the future? And I don't believe they could. I think this particular sort of history has got to be written by somebody who experienced it. So now is the time for you to start thinking about <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel that, that the age of empires is at its end? The age of our sort of empire. I mean, the, the sort of empire I've written about, I do. But of course, other sorts of empire come in all the time, don't they? The, the American empire now is very nearly universal, it seems to me. What I'm thinking of, exactly as you suggest, is that we don't necessarily have to have a political or military basis for empire. There can be an empire based on economics, or now it's starting to look as if there can be an empire based on communications. Yes, it's empire.com now, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> no, I'm sure that's true, and it's a much more insidious sort of empire, really, than the old sorts were. I mean, ours at least was sort of brutal, wasn't it, and frank, and you knew what you were up against. But when it's coming over the cyber net, it's a different matter altogether. And when it's a matter of economics and shares and all that stuff, uh, it's an empire that is very difficult if you want to destroy it. But in fact, we're also brainwashed, are we not? We don't want to destroy it, right? But a concomitant aspect of that is a cultural empire of, say, American music, American styles, American fashions, which turns, and of course, American fast food franchises, which turns a Moscow or a Trieste, I mean, maybe not Trieste yet, into a New York or a Dubuque. Especially it turns the British Isles, of course, into the places you mentioned because of the curse of the common language. So the British are very much more vulnerable to Americanization than anybody else. And it has turned Britain into a sort of hybrid nation, I think now, the sort of 50th and a half state. Oh, how many states are there now? 51, aren't there? 50. 50, yeah, well, 50 and a half. <laughs> When you travel around, how pervasive is this American culture, and is it destroying, um, outside of, say, Britain, is it destroying the indigenous cultures of Europe, of Africa, of India, of everywhere? I don't know. I personally don't think so, you know. I think it's still... Britain really is an exception because of the language, and maybe as more and more nations choose English as their second language, even as their first, maybe that's going to happen there too. But so far, I don't believe this to be true. I think the differences between the separate nations and continents are still much more profound than you would think by just saying, oh, there's another McDonald's. And another thing is, another phrase of mine is that McDonald's springs from the human heart. I, I, I'm afraid that's true. Everybody wants McDonald's, I'm afraid. And the younger you are, the more you want it. Isn't that so? So that, uh, I don't know if you're proud or ashamed of McDonald's proliferating across the world, but I don't think you can really claim either. I think it's just something that happens to have started in America, but it's organic to the human nature.
I just wonder, here we are at the end, not only of our century, but of our millennium, and we're we're speaking with with a self-effacing, but in my opinion, distinguished historian. If if, if this were the year 2999 instead of 1999, and you were asked to look back a thousand years, would, would you just, well, I won't, I won't, I won't, make this a multiple choice question. I will just say, what would you think? What would I think about the last 2,000 years? Well, I, I, first thing I would think was that everything I've done, everything I've written about, all subjects I've explored, are just a flicker, aren't they? They're, they're no more than a half a footnote in the history of the couple of thousand years. The passing of empires is nothing, really, it gets set against the sort of cosmic pattern of everything. It's all nonsense, the whole thing. It's all sound and fury signifying nothing. That's what I really think. But isn't it fun? It has been enormous fun. <laughs> Luckily, yes. <laughs> That's true. It's been very interesting, too, hasn't it? And it's going to be more interesting still, I suppose, as the millennia pass. We shan't know, shall we? Jan Morris's book, Lincoln, A Foreigner's Quest, was published in 2001. Also in 2001, another memoir, Trieste and the Meaning of Nowhere, was published. And that October, Dick Lupoff and I had a second chance to speak with Jan Morris. That interview will show up in the next couple of months. You've been listening to an interview with the late travel writer and historian Jan Morris, who died on November 20th, 2020, at the age of 94. My co-host was Richard A. Lupoff. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>